Good morning, church. It is great to see everybody this morning and joining with you in worship. The singing is just, just beautiful. And we appreciate everybody joining in in worship and in spirit and in truth this morning. While we're pulling up our uh, PowerPoint for this morning's lesson, let me reiterate with you something that we hold very dear here at the Westside Church of Christ. And if you're visiting with us, we thank you for being here. We make you a solemn promise that this is the book that we go by. That is not a, a trite or redundant statement. It's something we believe very deeply in. Our aspiration is to be the church we read about in the New Testament. We believe that is possible because Jesus asked us to be just that, and we believe He is Lord of His church, and we want to follow Him. And so, join us this morning as we look into God's Word and consider several things that He has for us this morning. I want to begin with a brief report of Team Thailand. Some of you may uh, realize that one of our elders, one of our deacons, and one of our ministers are all on a trip to Thailand, uh, on a mission trip to our oldest missionary work that we've supported for over 20 years. Derek and Lori Hudson, uh, Bill and Ruth Caldwell, and Furman and Jean Carpenter have all left to go work uh, in a country that is Buddhist by culture and primary religion. So it's a very difficult place to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to get that hearing. But over the 20 plus years we've been working there, over 30 congregations have been planted within that culture by uh, those who've worked with us as evangelists. Brother Udorn Inthong in the white shirt on the right with the uh, eyeglasses in his pocket has been the one that we've worked with the longest. Here is one of the small congregations that he is currently working with. And on the left, the uh, young man in the red shirt is Thule. He works with us especially in coordinating campaigns and translation. And so we want to keep our uh, team Thailand in our prayers as they are working with a number of church leadership groups to encourage them to establish the organization of the church in every congregation with elderships, just as we see in the pattern of the New Testament. And so that's often a very difficult final step to take in mission work, and that's where we are in the work. So be praying and lifting them up in prayer with us this week. If you have your Bibles or your digital device, please be turning to Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. Many of you may recognize that uh, our congregation has had a bit of a shock this weekend as the Rackley family, Gerald and Brittany and their four children, uh, have suffered a, a, a serious setback in that Brittany, while uh, at a uh, devotional uh, she was driving home, and she passed out and then wrecked into a, a stop sign and, uh, and then was taken to the hospital, and she has been unconscious ever since. Uh, she is, uh, they tried to bring her out of, uh, of that sedation state yesterday, but she was having trouble breathing, and so they're trying to remove some fluid from her lungs and uh, then bring her out of that state. She has uh, shown some indication of awareness, which is positive, but it's still a very serious and dangerous time uh, for Brittany, and of course a very scary time for Gerald and the four children. 
So we want to be mindful of them and prayerful of their needs this week. Uh, about 50 of the congregation joined last yesterday evening kind of spontaneously to spend time in prayer for them. This morning's lesson in Romans 15 verse 4 deals with this kind of situation where perhaps life's circumstances happen in such a way that it's not what you were expecting. It was not your aspiration for life to happen this way. Perhaps a relationship has not gone as you had planned. Perhaps a job choice has not gone as you have planned. Perhaps members of the family have made decisions that wasn't as you would want. And often in these times, we get discouraged, and often that discouragement leads to hopelessness. And hopelessness is a very dangerous place to be for anyone but especially a Christian. When we reach times of hopelessness in our lives, we are tempted to return to old ways of doing things, return to sinful paths of doing things. And so the Apostle Paul here in Romans 15 verse 4, within the context of dealing with young churches where mature Christians are having to get along in unity with new Christians who perhaps do not know very much about the Word of God, do not have the, the foundations very deeply in Christian life, and that, that tension between the mature and the immature threatens the life of the church. Here Paul references Psalm 69 in verse 9, saying that whatever you're going through as a Christian, as a church, it is not more than what Jesus went through. Psalms tells about Jesus saying he has taken on himself the uh, dis disappointments and the tribulations that were cast upon God the Father. And we know by the life of Jesus that none of us have had the discouragement or the tribulations in our lives that Jesus himself experienced. And so the Apostle Paul is going to give us some teaching that will actually draw us to a place of hope. Not wishful thinking, but a place of rock-solid hope on which we can stand. In Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, it reads, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now, this particular might is not maybe have hope. That would be a little bit of a discouragement at the end of a wonderful verse if it said maybe have hope. But that's not what the word means. It's actually equivalent to to have and to hold. So, my hope is something that I can have and hold on to if I will take Paul's teaching seriously in this passage. Now, what is written before that is written for our learning has to do, as Peter explains in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, with the very nature of God and what God can do for us in ways that are far beyond what we can do for ourselves. In 2 Peter 3, verse 8 through 9, it reads, 
But do not overlook this one fact. Here's Peter, an apostle and an elder in the church, telling the young church, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God is intrinsically eternal. It's one of His qualities that is innate in His being. And being eternal means that He can see the past, He can see the present, and He can see the future without violating your permission to choose morally yourself. His perspective, I've often referred to it as, uh, I keep aquariums as a hobby, and a human being outside of an aquarium can see both the left-hand side of the aquarium and the right-hand side of the aquarium at the same time. I often sit and look at my fish wondering, are they amazed at me that I can see both sides at the same? Well, I don't know what they're thinking. But God can see history this way, and with the Scriptures that He has given us in the Old Testament, He often is able to give us a perspective not only on what is going on in the here and now, or in the Old Testament case, in our past history, but it also has implications for the future and is one of our primary proofs then of how we can get to know God and trust God and trust the very word that He gives us. Trust it in a way that is far more than just liking the literature in the Bible, but actually trusting it to where we bank our entire lives on it. Now, in quick review of some lessons that Eric has brought to us recently and that uh, I have mentioned and, and several of us in Bible class have been studying, we have to understand that in the things written beforehand, that has to do with the Old Testament or that large part of the Bible that has to do with all the old previous covenants that God made. And why did God make covenants? Because man in sinfulness is separated from all holy God. We are referred to as dead in our sins. Well, a dead person can't really make many relationships. It just doesn't work that way, no matter what all of the, uh, the Halloween movies say. Dead people can't make relationships. So God has to reach out to us and establish a relationship. He does that through covenant. And He gives us permission from on high to choose, even in our sin, to enter into relationship with Him wherein we have life. Well, the old covenants always are explained in Scripture by law. Divine law tells us how a covenant works, what the covenant obligations are, if you will. But today we live under the new covenant, the covenant established by Jesus Christ, where Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 13 says, in speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete. Well, how is an obsolete covenant then, Paul, going to help me with patience, comfort, and hope? Well, that's what we're going to discover in this morning's lesson. You see, every covenant has obligations that we have to live by in that covenant. Old covenants have old obligations. And so we can't use old covenants to decide how we worship, 
how we organize the church, how we live as Christians, how we interact with one another, or how we come into relationship with God today. You can't use an old covenant obligation to know those things. Those are things in history. But if we do not know our history, then we will miss out on what Paul is promising us in Romans 15. Just as the old covenants have covenant obligations spelled out in law, the new covenant has its obligations spelled out in law. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Well, wait a minute, Brother Brian. I thought we're not under law anymore. I thought we're under grace. Well, those passages refer to the old law talking about the old covenant given to Moses. That's how the Jews had often referred to that old covenant as the law given on Mount Sinai. But that is not to say that the covenant today does not have laws that tell us how to come into relationship with God. In fact, that law works very differently from what you see on the left, a legal punitive law, which the old covenant was designed to do, convince me that I'm a sinner, convict me that I'm in sin and I need to be looking for a Messiah. That was the purpose of the old law and it accomplished it perfectly. What it couldn't do is save me. And so going forward, our law of a new covenant is incarnate. It works like a family law or a natural law. I know the law because I know Jesus. Jesus lived the law perfectly in front of me. And unlike the law of Moses, which told you what you thou shalt not do, and you had to meet certain minimums, you could be tempted in legal law to say, how close to the edge can I get? Y'all ever notice that when Furman preaches, he preaches with his toes right off the step? That horrifies me. I'm always afraid of just taking a complete tumble. I pray for him regularly when he does that. But with the law of Jesus, it's different in that I'm looking at Jesus and I'm saying, how close to Jesus can I get? It is me willing to do the will of my Father, and I want to embrace Jesus like a little child. I want to walk in the footprints of my Father. I want to embrace who Jesus is. I want to see how close I can grow to be just like Jesus. I want to obey the way He asks me to live. I want to think His thoughts. I want to see reality as He teaches me reality. And the reality is that Jesus Himself is our hope incarnate. In fact, the Apostle Paul would tell the young evangelist Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 1, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Jesus is our hope. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 and verse 24, for I tell you that many prophets and kings, these are those in the Old Testament, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. You see, in the Old Testament, when people were living through it, they had the teachings of God, they had the prophecies of God, they had the revelation of God, but God's plan of ultimate salvation had not yet been worked out, and so they had to really trust that God was working it out for the future. And so they saw something coming, 
but they didn't know exactly how it was working out. We of all people have the opportunity to see both the old and the new covenants and how that works out, and we are most blessed because of it. So what Paul is saying here is that these things in the Old Testament are given to us for our learning. Now, what does that imply for us? It means that we have to come to Scripture as learners. That's the only healthy way to approach Scripture. But our culture often doesn't like approaching religion as learners. In fact, a lot of times we like approaching religion as everybody's opinion is equally valid and it's just a matter of sharing your personal philosophies. Or perhaps our Western scientific worldview leads us to a place of academic skepticism where we come to pass skepticism judgment on what we read in Scripture and on what is being preached. Those worldly ways of approaching divinely revealed Scripture are extremely unhealthy for us. And Paul is saying the Old Testament Scriptures are given to you to be learners, to approach as a child in school, trusting the teacher to give you good information, to convict you in healthy ways, and to teach proper obedient behavior because of it. If we approach the Old Testament as true learners, then we stand to gain patience in ways the world cannot understand patience. And that patience is added to comfort that is a comfort beyond what this world can possibly know. Don't you know Gerald right now as he's sitting in the ICU with Brittany just a few feet away is needing that patience and that comfort? Perhaps you're facing something in your life where you need that patience and that comfort. Paul says it's here for you, and the Old Testament can help you with that. If you will learn and trust those scriptures, you can have hope that is as solid as a rock on which to stand. Now, how does this work? How does being a Romans 5-4 Bible learner work? For those of you who are in the Young Families class, do not panic. This is not going to be the same lesson twice. We, we looked at this same way of seeing scriptures in our Young Families class, and we looked at a prophecy. This morning we're going to look at shadows. The Old Testament often refers to shadows and prophecies that are inserted in scripture by eternal God with his eternal perspective, and if we will pay attention to them, it will teach me patience, it will teach me comfort, and it will give me hope if I will allow it. Perhaps you see the uh, gray circle on the left-hand side of the screen. When we read an Old Testament passage, often this is what it looks like when you're looking at it face on. But in reality, those are two circles. If I were to shade one of those circles, you'd see there was one behind and there's one in the front. If we were to take a walk to the side of this illustration, we would see that's actually a disc 
in the back, and the front disc is actually a good way away from the first disc. There is a space between them, and that space is often time. The shadows and prophecies of the Old Testament demonstrate God's ability to see across the ages of time and give prophecies and meaning to things in the past that in the new covenant we see come to fruition and we see come about. And that very process will give us patience and comfort and hope in ways that the world cannot understand. One of those ways is that Jesus himself is seen in the shadows of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus, our hope incarnate, is visible in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 16, let's look at one of these shadows that will amaze you. Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 through 4, reads, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. This test that God gave the children of Israel came in the form of miracle. The raining of bread down for the people's sustenance. Well, that's amazing in and of itself. But we do not see the full meaning of this shadow until Jesus, in John chapter 6, verse 48 through 51, explains the fuller nature of that shadow. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. This miracle that is explained in the Old Testament, Jesus states this miracle in the New Testament as fact. And he says, not only is it fact that it happened, but I am the fulfillment of that shadow. So what is the test for us as the children of Israel were tested with the manna? The test is the same. Jesus goes on to say in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What commandments? The commandments that teach us how to be in new covenant relationship with God. I've told this story a couple of times uh, to the congregation. I was working with a, a, a new church plant in Middle Tennessee, 
And we were showing a video of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and how they went across on dry land. It was an outdoor uh, movie experience where we had invited the community. And this young man was sitting beside me. His name is Kenny. And as those waters of the Red Sea suddenly parted and the children of Israel started going across on dry land, he leaned over to me and he said, well, if I'd seen that, I'd believe. Well, that is the point of the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 28 through 31, here relating, or John is relating the story of when Thomas, after Jesus has been killed on the cross and buried, Jesus raises from the dead, and Thomas sees him for the first time, and with Jesus standing right there in front of him, Thomas said, that ain't you. I'd love to have seen the look on, on Jesus' face when he said that. But finally, after seeing the wounds in his hand and the, the wound in his side, Thomas finally comes to that point of crisis and says, my Lord and my God. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Life in His name. You see, God in His infinite wisdom decided that our belief would hinge on reading the account of history from God's eyes, reading the mind of God in His holy word. That's God's doing, which as, as the leader of World Bible School, I find that very comforting that God has been doing Bible correspondence long before we ever thought about doing that. But this is how faith happens. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Good news about Kenny is he kept studying, and in 1990, I was checking my notes a couple of days ago, Kenny was baptized for the remission of his sin, now believing without actually having been present for the parting of the Red Sea. The Scripture has that power, but the Scripture is under assault today, and Satan through seducing doctrines of demons, would have us lose sight of the power of Scripture. A celebrity on television a couple of years ago made this statement. I was sitting there in my living room watching this, and he said, to be a good Christian, I don't have to believe in Noah's zoo boat or a virgin giving birth. Or does he? My first question for him is, if your God can't build a boat or create a life, why are you worshiping him as capital G God? Now, if in your Christian walk or in your study walk, you are struggling with doubt concerning the truthfulness of the Scripture, whether the Scripture is from God, whether the stories of Scripture are perhaps just fairy tales or metaphor 
or um, are just warm and fuzzy moralisms, you're in the right place. And you're welcome here at the West Side Church of Christ. Every one of our Bible classes from elementary school to adult will help you engage with Scripture in such a way that you can work through doubt and arrive at faith. It's possible, and you are very welcome to go through that walk with us. However, if in your sophistication, if in your worldview, you want to just camp out and hang out in doubt, considering the Bible a nice book, but after all, just a book by men. And the, the miracles, even though they're, they're wonderful stories, they're, they're not really true. Then you will become very uncomfortable at the West Side Church of Christ. Because we stand or fall by faith for our covenant relationship with God. It is not okay for us to ignore what the Old Testament says as if that's a productive or godly or Christian place to be. In fact, Jesus presses this crisis further in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4 through 6. He's going to heat up this whole discussion. Here, Moses when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. If there's anything more scientifically ridiculous than a zoo boat, it's a bush that is on fire and not burning. But that's exactly what the Old Testament Scriptures tell us. In fact, it pushes us further in Exodus 3 and verse 14, saying, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So what does this story have to do with the hope and the comfort and the patience of Old Testament Scriptures in light of Jesus, our incarnate hope? In John chapter 8 and verse 58, we see the reason the Pharisees and the Sadducees became so infuriated with Jesus, they plotted to murder Him. Where Jesus says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus claims to be God present for the covenant with Abraham, present at the burning bush with Moses. Jesus does not entertain the idea that you can just be a member of Christendom in a kind of scientific, comfortable, intellectual way, not really, really accepting his deity. That's not a possibility. 
You see, Jesus accepted the burning bush. Jesus accepted the manna raining down from heaven. Jesus knew when Noah was in the ark full of animals. Jesus knew when the virgin conceived. And he accepts all of that as fact. The only way the Old Testament benefits us with patience, with comfort, and leads us to a rock-solid hope is if we accept that what God says in His Scriptures is absolutely true. Let's close with one last shadow this morning. A shadow that we see in Exodus chapter 26 and verse 33. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. These were covenant obligations under the law of Moses, and it had to do with their organization for worship and the tabernacle wherein the ark of the covenant existed, the mercy seat of God. But there was a huge veil between the holy of holies and the holy place because sin still separated man from the presence of God. Interestingly enough, within that Ark of the Covenant was a golden bowl of the very manna we saw in the first shadow. Manna that was not spoiled miraculously. And Jesus affirms this as he explains to us the greater meaning of this shadow in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Hebrew writer is explaining the greater meaning of that shadow from the Old Covenant and that Jesus, through His sacrifice on the cross, tore miraculously that veil between the Holy of Holies apart, thus opening the way for us to have a direct relationship with God that the world has not seen since the days of Adam and Eve's innocence. But thanks be to the blood of Jesus, we have that way open for us today. But to accept that, we must accept what Jesus says about the Old Testament because Jesus accepts it as fact do you hang on to a super sophisticated, academically elite belief system that has to somehow mesh what scientists say about evolution and what God says in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3? Are you unable to accept that God Almighty can create the heavens and the earth in six days? Oh, but Brother Davis, can, the, the science is clear. Billions of years took place for the world to become what it is and for us to inhabit the world. Well, except the Old Testament doesn't say that. 
And if your God takes billions of years to get a job done, does he have a lowercase g or an uppercase g in front of his name? You see, the fact is, Christians are called on to believe that when God says he can do something in six days, he can jolly well do it because he's God. And Jesus says he believes that. And if you want to follow Jesus, you have to accept what he says in the Old Testament. They're a package deal. You can't separate it out because of what your culture says is rational or reasonable. The laws of science do not govern God. God created science. And we are called to that place of faith with Jesus Christ this morning. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, and we close with this verse, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Please do not leave this morning in hopelessness. Submit your mind and your spirit and your will to the revealed will of God who has blessed you with the hearing of his word this morning and choose to believe. Believe because Jesus believed. Believe because God proves through his prophecies, through his shadows, that he is able and he is worthy. Obey the gospel that we saw being fulfilled with the rending of the veil, being washed with pure water. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, willing to name him as your Lord, repent of your sins, and be immersed with him in the waters of baptism, by his promise he will raise you to a newness of life, a newness of life that will give you patience, comfort, and hope in ways that will bless you now and for eternity and will bless your family. Perhaps this morning you have been struggling in skepticism, and intellectualism to the exclusion of what the Scripture clearly teaches. Perhaps you need to repent of that and come home. This family would love to welcome you back and pray for you. If you're facing something that you simply need the prayers of the body to lift up before our powerful God in heaven and submit that to His care, then won't you come while together we stand and sing the hymn announced.